Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some difficult topics. This month of March, we are covering the situation in family courts. And the situation in family courts when it comes to domestic violence, custody, divorce, has been referred to by many people as a family court crisis. Um, Two weeks ago, if you missed that, on March 5th, we had a show with Barry Goldstein and uh, Marilyn McLean talking about what do we mean by family court crisis. Last week, we covered the Father's Rights Movement and its contribution to this crisis. This week, we are very fortunate. We have a very prominent attorney who has worked a lifetime advocating for children, and uh, his name is uh, Richard Dakota. And, uh, Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very, very much, Heather. I appreciate your interest in this topic. It's... um it's a topic and a problem that uh, most people are not aware of unless they are or know somebody involved in a family court custody or divorce case where there's been domestic violence or child abuse. And then they're very, very familiar with the nightmare that uh, that parents and primarily mothers go through trying to protect themselves and their kids in courtrooms that uh, are supposed to be about protection, but end up being about uh, just the opposite. Exactly. Well, when we were talking on the air, you you mentioned a comment that someone made about you, and I want to use that. Um, you said that someone said that you have been raising hell for kids all over the country, and you've been doing that for almost 30 years now. Am I right on oh, that one? Almost 40 years. It would be 38 almost years uh, in a couple of weeks, 38 years oh. in a couple of weeks. Well, you know, as as someone of, of that of your generation, I, you know that time goes awfully fast, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it? It does, and and I've traveled uh, uh, probably two and a half million miles in over forty four states in the courtrooms in forty four states, uh, tackling uh, the same problems over and over and over, and um, it it goes by fast, but uh, it's it's uh, heartbreaking. The work never ends. Now, I believe that you started your career working with foster children and adoption um, and, and made some real inroads in there. And then was it in the 80s you started focusing more on uh, custody issues and divorce issues? Am I correct sure. in Sure. Yeah. When I was a um, in law school, I was a juvenile probation officer, and I had always wanted to combine um, my um, my psychology training with legal training and plan to go to uh, graduate school in psychology as well as law school. And when I was in law school, I became a a juvenile probation officer and started working with kids um, in the detention homes and kids who had been charged with crimes and kids who were runaways and um, were what we called then uh, status offenders or sometimes they're referred to as ungovernables, kids who were locked up because uh, they wouldn't listen to their parents. That was that was basically the the contention. Uh, and what I realized was that the vast majority of those kids were abused and neglected kids, and uh, that was the source of their problems. And they ended up, ironically, in the detention home, being locked up far longer than kids who were charged with crimes. And that was my first exposure to an up down upside down system involving kids that. The way things worked uh, wasn't what actually happened. It was just the opposite. So I started just trying to focus in on what what it was in the system that was causing this problem, and that led me to um, write a grant that started the Tulane Juvenile Law Clinic where we started training social work students and law students together to, to represent kids in juvenile court um, abuse and neglect cases. And that took me to involvement with the foster parent associations and with foster kids and the realization that uh, there was a very, very severe problem uh, where kids were being removed from their homes because they were being abused or neglected, but then put in the foster care system where they were not given any permanence but simply moved from home to home to home. And um, so I went about uh, changing the laws and... uh, 
uh, re, uh, basically redoing the whole child welfare system in Louisiana so kids were, um, were given uh, adoption rather than long-term foster care. And uh, in that capacity, I, I became a, a special assistant district attorney in 19 Louisiana parishes, or what Louisiana calls uh, their counties, as they're known in other states. And we just travel the state uh, training social workers and litigating these termination of parental rights cases and rewriting the laws. And uh, and then I, I I stumbled into this this big hornet's nest of regular child custody cases where kids were being abused and uh, their mothers who who were told by the system and the child welfare system and society that they had to protect their kids if they were being abused by the child's father and then they would go into family court and try to do that and and then the system would backfire on them and accuse them of simply being vindictive and give the kids to the abusers and um the most uh, one of my first cases was a very very famous case Dr. Elizabeth Morgan in in Washington oh, DC oh. who yes, uh-huh. Who ended up um, uh, being jailed for contempt of court for not sending her abused daughter to the father, and had one of the longest, if not the longest, contempt of court sentences in the history of the United States. And Congress wrote a special law, basically, just to get her out of jail. And that case uh, became uh, the subject of hundreds of law review articles and uh, a TV movie, and and all sorts of law reform efforts and. Um, and then I just, from there, I uh, just started taking on this problem around the country uh, and uh, writing a lot of legislation uh, back in the 80s and the 90s. And to this day, I have some, some bills. I'm uh, working through the Louisiana legislature to try to solve some of this. So it's been hundreds and hundreds of cases and uh, all over the place, and it, it continues to be a very, very big problem. So. Okay. Well, one of the things that I've noticed in talking with people about the series of shows that we've been doing this month is people don't tend to believe me when I say there's a crisis in family courts. I have a friend who actually worked in the courts for many times, and uh, and um, she's been really supportive. But I also have a friend that uh, works in court currently, and when I, you know ancillary, and they're they're not judges or anything, um, and I say something like a f- crisis in family courts. And they say, what do you mean? And I say about protective mothers losing custody. And they say, oh, don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. Um, You hear a lot about these protective mothers, but, you know, there's a reason women lose custody. What is your comment based on your experience to that kind of a statement? Well, this this is the best way to explain the family court crisis. If you take a certain case, a certain child, who uh, reports that they're being sexually abused or physically abused by the father. If you take that case and you take the, the evidence of the, the abuse and you take it to a criminal court jury where the proof must be by a reason, beyond a reasonable doubt the most stringent burden of proof we have under the law, and you present the facts to a criminal court or a criminal court jury, in the vast majority of cases you will get a conviction and that father will be um, sent to prison in most cases. If you take that same amount of evidence and take it to a family court judge, in most circumstances where the burden of proof is even less, it's just a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not the abuse has to be proved, not only will that family court judge not find that the abuse occurred, but will find that the mother made it up and give, give custody to the father. And this is why. Uh, and this, this, the same thing happens uh, in the juvenile court as happens in the criminal court. If you go to juvenile court with the same amount of evidence in a child abuse and neglect case where the state brings an action to protect the child, the juvenile court judge will typically find, and often the standard there is clear and convincing evidence, which is a standard between preponderance of the evidence and and its lesson beyond a reasonable doubt. 
and the judge will find that the child was abused and protect the child. So, But if you go to the family court judge, they find that that's not even evidence of anything, or if it's anything, it's evidence the mother made it up. And the reason is because the criminal court system and the juvenile court system are geared to a determination of facts. Did this happen or did this not happen? The family court, which is the court that generally handles divorce and custody cases in most jurisdictions, is not oriented to make factual determinations. Its its mission, as both in philosophy and very often in the statutes, is to uh, render a decision that's in the child's best interest, which sounds good, and that you, one would think that protecting a child from domestic violence or child abuse or child sexual abuse is in the child's best interest. But the way the family court is set up, the most important criteria is that the parents get along and cooperate and co-parent. So the parent who comes into court and says, I want my child to be protected from violence or abuse by the other parent, the focus is not on whether they're accurate or whether that's really going on or whether or not it's happening. The focus becomes, does this parent want to get along with the other parent? And then the the uh, the analysis shifts to that. And if this parent doesn't want to get along with the other parent, and the abusive parent wants to get along with the other parent ostensibly because they know how to play the game, then that becomes the the uh, preferred parent. So uh, because a lot of laws have what's called the friendly parent provision, and that is the 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 um, uh, the primacy of the parent who wants to cooperate. And then what happens, too, is there are two entities that are built into the family court process that absolutely undermine and pull the rug out from under uh, a protective parent's ability to protect their child in family court. One is what's called the guardian ad litem. And the guardian ad litem is an attorney, usually, sometimes non-attorney, whose goal is to protect the represent the best interests of the child. Now, that is the guard, the system of the guardian ad litem is one of the most well-meaning disasters that has ever uh made its way into uh clearly our court systems, but I would think in 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 government operations in general. Because what happens with the guardian ad litem? A guardian ad litem is typically a lawyer who uh, is friends with the judge or doesn't really have a successful practice and sort of uh, uh, gets into the system and gets all these court appointments to be a guardian ad litem. And they typically, and there's lots of documentation of this, they typically don't understand domestic violence, don't understand uh, child abuse, don't understand child sexual abuse. And the the judge gives them the the task of figuring out what to do, basically. And what happens then is the whole issue of a uh, a trial where people actually present evidence and the judge assesses credibility from the testimony of the witnesses that the judge observes is the guardian ad litem writes a report and says this is what I think should happen, and the judge pretty much um, buys that hook, line, and sinker. And then that becomes the um, the basis of the judge's decision because they, the judge will say, well, the, the guardian ad litem is the only person who really has only the child's best interest at heart. These two parents are just competing with each other for um, – for their own interest, and the guardian ad litem is the only one representing the child's interest. Well, that is absolutely nonsense. The guardian ad, guardians ad litem typically don't know what they're doing. They don't have the capacity. They they don't have the training, and it 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 is simply uh, uh, usurping the role of the court. For example, if you had a criminal court trial, 
you would never think of appointing some lawyer to come and 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 decide what to do. That's why you have jurors. That's why you have a judge who has to hear all the evidence. You don't give that authority to some lawyer who hasn't done real well outside of being a guardian and litem. Same thing in a civil case. If you had a traffic accident, the judge would not appoint a lawyer to come tell the judge what happened uh, in the uh, in the accident to tell the judge what happened because you know you have one driver here, you want to have one driver here. You know they each have their own interests, and the guardian and litem is the only neutral one. It it is a bogus precept from day one. Now, that is not to say that if you have an attorney who's appointed to actually represent uh, the child as an attorney would and, and advocate for what the child wants, that's a, that's a very important concept. That's valid. The guardian ad litem is not. In fact, the American Bar Association back in 2003, in, uh, and the, this, is, this is published in uh, uh, the... Um, 37 Family Law um, Quarterly 103, I think page 103, uh, in, in 2003, the American Bar Association took the position that it's unethical. It is unethical for an attorney to serve in the role of a guardian ad litem because the role of a guardian ad litem is is contrary to what an attorney does. So, uh, but but that system is very very prevalent, and that's the first problem. The second well, problem is. Well, excuse me. Is, I want to just yeah. get in here, sure. um, and I and I hope you can keep your train of thought here while I oh, do this. I want to give out our phone number because we can take calls. So six four six three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero we have a caller i think i know who it is uh that's on hold and i hope if you'll just stick with us there merrily i'll get to you in just a minute um i want richard to be able to finish his thought so okay sorry for that interruption oh but I no didn't no, no problem so 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 that's the, the thing you, you got this this creature in the family court who even the american bar association says shouldn't be there but it's it's uh the judges love them now, I wrote a law review article uh, called um, Guardians ad litem um, in, fam- in Private um, Child Custody Proceedings, the Case for Abolition. And that can be Googled. If you just Google my name, Richard Decody, and Guardians ad litem, that law review article is found at uh, three, volume three, Loyola Journal of Public Interest Law, page 106. And that gives... Uh, I think, uh, if I can say so, a very good analysis of what the problem is with guardians ad litem in the country. I, I compare the guardian ad litem, the relationship between the judge and the guardian ad litem to the rhinoceros and the tick bird in the jungle, where you know, the, <laughs> the rhinoceros walks through the jungle as the family court judge walks through the family court and uh, doesn't want to have to be bothered with all these ticks uh, that are climbing on the back of the rhinoceros. So this tick bird comes and lands on the rhinoceros' back and then eats all the, the ticks that are, climb up from the, the grass being shaken. And yeah. and that's the relationship. The, the, these guardians ad litem get very hefty fees from the parents uh, and, and pretty much uh, undermine the child's uh, safety and future. The second problem is the quote, child custody evaluator, which is a mental health professional who's also appointed by the judge to um, determine what's in the child's best interest. That also is a very, very disastrous proposition because most of these mental health professionals have no uh, understanding of domestic violence or child abuse, uh, and they use things that are absolutely invalid for the purpose they use them for. For example, they'll use psychological testing, the MMPI, uh, the Minnesota Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or the Rorschach, or all these kind of tests, and uh, then they will write reports saying that they don't believe the father committed abuse based on the psychological testing. 
But when you ask what, One of them, my favorites was a, yeah. a psychologist who interviewed the father and wrote a, a report saying, well, the father has borderline personality disorder, um, he has hypervigilance, he has this, that, and the other thing, but it's to be expected based on the fact that the wife had him arrested. Oh, yeah. It is, <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Uh, and it, these, these psychologists would not be allowed in any other courtroom, but... There is a, and, and the way I put it, these family court judges worship at the altar of the child custody evaluator. And uh, I, I have cases, I remember a, a judge in Cincinnati once said in a case I was involved in, he said, um, I'm not going to point the finger, I'm not going to say um, why this is true, but not one mental health professional will ever come testify in my court again. And I took that as as a major accomplishment for me because I, I it is absolutely incredible and I could I could depose them in my sleep and and every time you take their deposition if you ask the right questions you expose the charade and and it, it, it if it weren't so devastating to the lives of the mothers and the kids it would be it would be humorous but it is absolutely the incompetence the unethical practices of these uh child custody evaluators is is legion, and uh, more and more of them are being disciplined. I, I just won a case in Louisiana, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, and if you Google this, it'll come up. It's called Hillkirk, H-I-L-K-I-R-K, versus Johnson, just J-O-H-N-S-O-N. It's Louisiana Court of Appeal, Fourth Circuit, and that's where a psychologist recommended uh, that uh, this 15-year-old girl be immediately sent to her father's home and cut off from contact with her mother based on the, uh, and you may have talked about this in your previous shows, the bogus parental alienation syndrome nonsense. And uh, the Court of Appeal reversed and called, one of the judges called the um, with the psychologist and the judge did cruel and heartless. And uh this the and this is how this is how bizarre and incompetent these people are. This uh, this little girl had been out of touch with her father for a number of years because she came home. Well, first of all, he had severely beaten her mother, and then uh, the child came home when she was four years old with a black eye. So he was out of her life for a couple of years. Started visiting her again, and then he he was. Um, uh, a court in Mississippi terminated all his contact with his other child because uh, he had tried to choke that child, and then uh, he was supposed to go to a psychological evaluation. Well, he did not follow through with that, so uh, the mother of the 15-year-old uh, did not want her daughter to go to his house until he at least was following the Mississippi order. So this psychologist came in and said, well, because the mother is um, uh, conveniently using the fact that he lost contact with his other daughter as just an excuse to keep her daughter away from him, it was one of the worst cases of alienation she had ever seen. Oh. And uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately, we uh, we got that child back to the appellate court. And if you read the appellate decision, you'll see the the nonsense that the psychologist uh, was uh, was spewing and uh, hopefully she'll lose her license as a result but um it's it's a very very bad situation this psychologist makes uh, about a half million dollars a year from doing only these these custody evaluations and this is this is her work product it's very very sad you know, I have. If I can interrupt here, I have a question. Sure. It boggles the mind. Now, I realize that most people don't spend their lives studying domestic violence or specializing in domestic violence, but nevertheless, there are enough stories out there, and there are enough. There's enough research out there um, that indicate, and certainly the Bar Association, the Psychological Association, have all said. Um, you know, no such thing as parental alienation. It was started by a pedophile in the 80s to make money, okay? I mean, they have completely disavowed um, parental alienation syndrome, and yet, I guess guess in the last couple of years, they've changed, the proponents have changed it from syndrome to some other word. Um, But there's such buy-in to this whole parental alienation stuff, and um, 
I, I spoke with uh, the president of a, of a very large organization um, uh, of court personnel, um, judges, guardians ad litems, the whole thing, and he absolutely was adamant that we do know that this exists, we do know that it's out there, we do know that it operates frequently, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, but we don't. I mean, we know just the opposite. And yet these people who are intelligent and in the field so still buy into this. Why? Well, um, first of all, there's a lot of money to be made by uh, by uh, using it. You know, I was the last attorney to cross-examine Dr. Richard Gardner. Uh, it's a proponent. I cross-examined him in New Jersey in a case that um, was was absolutely totally totally bizarre. This was a case involving. A um, a man who had a a, a um, paraphilia where he enjoyed shaving his six year old daughter's legs um, every time oh. she had a, a visit with him, and it was apparently for some sexual turn on. So uh, Dr. Gardner was appointed to eva- do an evaluation, and this the, and the, I'm going to go into a little detail about this so people really understand how crazy crazy this guy was and he, and and the the very damaging influence he had on on many many courts and thousands of kids lives down the road because of his 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 marketing you know he he would publish his own books and send them around to judges and do this all this training and he really had probably a, a 10 year head start on the counter training to undo it so so he was appointed to um to determine what was happening in this case. So so this is what he did. He came up with the about idea. Richard Gardner here. Richard Gardner, yeah. yes. And this was in New Jersey and, and this was in, in the wintertime in New Jersey. So he this was his solution. The father would pick three people and the mother would pick three people and they would form this committee that before this little girl went to visit his her father, they would examine her legs and rate how much hair was on her legs from one to five. And then when she would return from the visit, the committee was supposed to convene and examine her legs again and rate how much hair was on the from one to five. And then he forbade the child... Uh, to wear uh, any kind of stockings or leggings or tights or anything because he had heard from this other doctor who he called Dr. X that maybe that's what was making the the hair fall off the child's legs. Now, the two <laughs> kids, the, the, this is how crazy, it is like a mad scientist, and this is the nonsense, the total bizarre nonsense that that we have to deal with. So these two kids could actually uh, uh, go and point out in the drugstore the the cream that the father would use to put on the little girl's legs to shave the legs. So Gardner decided that the father was indeed shaving the girl's legs. Then he called up the mother and said that she owed him $700 for his evaluations, he said, no, 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 I already paid you. I have a receipt. I don't owe you any money. So he immediately wrote a letter to the judge saying that he now realized, and he sent this ex parte privately to the judge, he now realizes that it was not the father who was shaving the child's legs. It was the mother who was shaving the child's legs uh, to induce parental alienation syndrome, and the child should immediately be taken away from the mother, given to the father, and the mother's contact should be cut off. So uh, that's how crazy that's how crazy this is. And fortunately, we were able to, to stop that. And I got involved in the case, cross-examined Gardner, and uh, a few weeks later, he killed himself. So. Um, oh, so, I did a report on him when yeah. I was doing my master's, and I was absolutely astounded at how bogus his credentials were. I mean, absolutely oh, yeah. bogus. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I remember, I, I shouldn't quote this because I'm probably not remembering exactly, but it was something to the effect of he supposedly worked at Harvard. Well, and Columbia. Research, yeah. Uh, Columbia, yeah, and the research mm-hmm. indicated that, no, he worked in the daycare center as a volunteer. 
I mean, it, yeah. and, and again, I'm I'm not remembering this exactly, but it was that was the gist of it. You know, that it was, wow, really? Okay, so I can volunteer at Columbia and then say I worked at Columbia. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, okay. he was he was he was an adjunct professor. You know, he had taught some courses at some point, but in his in the tep, in his testimony, he admitted he had not heard he had had no contact with the dean of Columbia Medical School for over twenty years. He had not taught a course for over fifteen years, and the dean of of the medical school said we would never have this guy teach a course, but he would self publish these things. They were so pro pedophile it was unbelievable. He he uh, talked about how the the only damage that would come from sexual abuse was that the child wouldn't orgasm. He would, uh, you know, he would get sexually frustrated. He would talk about how how ironic it was that only the Jews were against pedophilia, and that pedophilia is the norm around the world. And how if you if you had a a, ma- a man who sexually abused kids, you just had to tell him, unfortunately. He was born in the United States, where this is looked down on. I mean, that's how, that's how crazy. And and to this day, you still have people who think he's the greatest thing in the world now. Oh yeah. But yeah. but what happens is, you know, the in these divorce and custody cases, the money is always on the side of the abusers. It's it's and most of the cases I have, the the abusive fathers are professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers. Um, company executives, et cetera. So if they are exposed with uh, as being abusers, they lose everything. So they will spend money for this for the uh, um, this industry of these lawyers and these psychological whores who will come into court with this parental alienation nonsense because it is much more important for them to save themselves uh, from exposure than to avoid... Uh, destroying their their ex-wives and kids. And typically the dynamic in the domestic violence cases is you have these very um uh very narcissistic uh control freaks who uh look at it this way, well, you know, I've done everything I could to uh uh control my woman, I beat her up, I threatened her, I threatened to kill her, I threatened to take the kids away from her if she leaves me. She still left me. So now I have to destroy the bitch, and that means take the kids away from her, abuse the kids, bankrupt her, and throw her in jail for contempt of court, and that'll teach her for leaving me. That's how these guys think, and and the judges are totally naive to all this. They look at the guy and say, "Well, he looks good," and the mom is frazzled. So that's that. Well, the next thing I want to talk about is why. Why are the judges and court personnel and all of these ancillary people that that are are involved in uh, in court cases uh, like this and custody cases? Why are they so naive to this? Why don't they get it? And the second question is why do they appear to be so punitive to the mothers? Um, you know, it seems like a father can do pretty some pretty egregious things, and even if the court says, you know what, we're not going to give you custody of this child, but we'll give you visitation. Mothers can do something, and it seems like it's, look, you have done this, and you're never going to see this kid again. That's my impression. So when we come back, I want to talk about those two issues. First of all, though, I want to, I've been letting this caller stay on hold, and I want to go to our caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Is this Marilee? Yes, I'm here. I'm here with four other professionals that are listening to the coming talk. And they're okay. Marilee, you're using a speakerphone, and that means death as far as voice quality. So all I'm hearing is a lot of, like, you're talking through a string and a tin can. So uh, do you, you're you going to have to pass the phone around rather than using the speaker. Can you do that? Okay, yeah, let me see that a second. Okay. Do do you want to add something okay, to the yes, speaker? I, I took it off speaker. Can you hear me? Yeah, they're great. That's good. Perfect. So, Marilee, Perfect. how are we doing so far? Oh, I am so happy to have Dakota on that show. <laughs> Hi, Marilee. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Richard. Fine. How are you? Um, I, you know, I just, I, I think he's amazing, and I just think everything you're talking about is so, so needs to get out there. I wish this was broadcast nationwide, internationally. And I have four women uh, professionals sitting in here listening to this with me. So um, we're all listening. I'm really impressed. 
So everything everything Richard's saying, I would say right along with him. So. Okay. Well, let me just say that this show is broadcast internationally, and it is available about 10 minutes after we go live, after we wrap it up here. It will be available on the website, the one that you're listening to right now, and it will be available forever. So it is, as a matter of fact, I look through the stats sometimes, and all of a sudden I'll see, you know, 200 people that listen to a show that we did, in, in, you know, two years ago. Um, so it is available out there. It is available to anybody with a computer, computer and an Internet connection. And um, we also are talking about putting together this series of four shows into a one-show episode that we can send to anybody who is able to listen to it. So, um, you know, send it out as an MP3. So we are working on making this available uh, routinely and uh, uh, widely to just about everyone uh, because this is good information. I would like to see this program. Um, I went through a guardian ad litem training in King County, Washington, and I have to say that King County, Washington, is exemplary. They get it. They get domestic violence, and they've gotten it for a number of years. They, they're, we are proud from the police through the courts, uh, you know, just about everybody. And yet, the guardians ad litem, not so much. And I actually went through, a couple of years ago, I went through the King County Bar Association guardian ad litem training. It was a three-year, a four-day thing. They addressed domestic violence. They had one speaker who was excellent. And then after that, it was pretty much lip service. I have to say, that's my opinion, having gone through it. Um, I understand now that they've changed that a little bit, but it, it's amazing to me how, um, in my experience, even in this wonderful exemplary county, the GALs didn't quite get it. And we have a volunteer uh, group, a CASA group, that for people who can't afford to pay the high lawyer prices, um, they can go to CASA. And I have to say, again, in my experience, the CASA people who serve as GALs get it so much better than the private GALs out here. Richard, have you seen that in your experience? Oh, absolutely. And the thing about the guardians ad litem, the guardians ad litem originally came out of the juvenile court system where uh, they would be appointed to represent the interests of abused and neglected kids in, in cases where the state had taken kids away from their parents and kids went foster care. And that still is very a very, very useful uh, viable uh program the um the the problem with guardian guardians ad litem really uh mushroomed when they became involved in the family court custody cases and i think uh originally it was believed that that would be a natural extension of the guardian ad litem concept but it really uh pulled the rug out from under the um, accurate fact-finding process, so uh, it's it's just a, an entity that's not needed. You, the way it should work is if people make allegations, you bring the witnesses, you bring the evidence, you bring the testimony, and you let the judge decide what happened. You don't put in these intermediaries, uh, such as these custody evaluators and the guardians ad litem, who um, are um, uh, actually contravene accurate fact finding? So, and and, and, and it's yet, true we, there. Yeah. yeah, we we see this. It's not just the GALs. I mean, as you mentioned, there's also the the child custody evaluators. There are the psychologists. There are the psychiatrists. There are the uh, advocates. There are the um, uh, CPS workers. There are the social workers. I mean, it seems to be a never-ending industry surrounding sure. this whole custody thing. Um, is that the way it? I'm not an attorney. Is that the way it is in just about everything? I mean, if I sue somebody for breaking a contract with me, um, am, am I going to see that? Um, no, you, you don't is, see all these other players. It, the court systems work the way they're supposed to work. You go to court, you say he broke the con the contract, you put on your evidence, the judge listens to the testimony of everybody who has information about that, the rules of evidence apply, and then the judge makes a decision using um, the, the substantive law about what should happen under those circumstances. 
if and that's a very good question because if you applied the family court model you would have the uh somebody a psychologist interview you and the person you had the contract with give you a bunch of psychological tests and determine who maybe had the profile of a contract breaker who had the profile of somebody who would make up uh contract breaking allegations yeah. Uh, you know, I, this is how crazy this is, and I use I do a lot of training with custody evaluators to to try and and uh, get them um, away from this uh, this role. Uh, and I always tell them, I say, I say, look, you know, if, if somebody's accused of bank robbery, you don't uh, evaluate the teller to see if they're the type to make false allegations of bank robbery. You don't evaluate the person who was caught outside of the bank with the bag of money with dye all over him to see if he is the type of person who would rob the bank. You look at the evidence and determine what happened. I, all, I My favorite um, uh, explanation and, and analogy I use in, in training is to say, you know, it's a good thing that the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal after World War II was not based on the family court model because you would have appointed a psychologist to interview the Jews and the Nazis. And the report would have said that the Jews came and they were very, very angry. They were very angry at the Nazis. They couldn't say one nice thing about the Nazis. They couldn't say one good time they had with the Nazis. Uh, They just accused the Nazis of all sorts of horrible, outlandish, ridiculous things. And then they interviewed the Nazis, and the Nazis were well dressed. They were on time. Uh, they they said well, they were you know, in they control. Just, yeah, they just <laughs> they just tried to build some nice places for the Jews to live. So the report from the uh, of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal, had it been a family court, was it was simply a case of Nazi alienation syndrome. And I've had I've had psychologists <laughs> come up to me and say, you know something, you're right. That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's get to these other questions. And again, if you'd like to call in, um, Marilee, um I put you on mute here so we can you can keep listening. Um, but I'll I'll open your mic again in a few minutes. Um, let's give out the phone number for somebody else who might want to call six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight. 0430. We also have the chat room open. If you don't want to call, you can uh, type a comment or a question in the chat room. Let's get back to our questions, Richard. First of all, why are why is the idea of parental alienation so entrenched in the courts, in spite of popular uh, publications that are, are showing that it's it's bogus in spite of all sorts of research that shows that it's bogus, in spite of prof- some, some pretty solid professional organizations saying it's bogus. Why are courts so wedded to this even now? Well, uh, I think the first reason is because of incompetent or cowardly lawyers. Um, because Family court, the, the culture of family court and the family court bar functions very much like a cartel. It's it's the family bar that, and by the bar, means the the group of attorneys who generally practice in a given family court. It's a very close knit club, and they're very cozy with the judges and they're cozy with each other, and they get very lazy in the practice of law. And they don't challenge the admissibility of these theories. In fact, this trial I was just in this week, I filed what's called a motion in limine to exclude any evidence of any opinions of people talking about parental alienation syndrome or parental alienation. And the other side agreed and said, yes, you know, we don't intend to do that. Although, and this is a case I got in very, very late after all this other stuff was done, but the custody evaluator had written in his report. Uh, that the parents need to be trained on the evils of parental alienation syndrome. And when I took his deposition, he admitted that it was bogus and nonsense, but he says, I really don't know why I put that in there. I shouldn't put it in there. But, you know, if if I had not raised that issue, that would have sailed through. So 
uh, attorneys are very lazy. Don't in family court they don't spend a lot of time with the rules of evidence and and all that. So so that's one reason. The second reason is what's called an issue conflict of interest, where say if an attorney represents both abusers and the victims, uh, he or she will want to use parental alienation syndrome as a defense when they're representing the abusers. So since the abusers pay more, pay their attorneys a lot more than the victims because the abusers have all the resources, when they have a case representing the victims, they don't want to challenge and don't want to uh, to destroy the credibility of these custody evaluators who spew this parental alienation syndrome nonsense because they want to be able to use them when they're representing the more lucrative client. So what happens is the moms get sold down the drain and and because they have an issue of conflict uh, an issue conflict of interest this issue of parental alienation syndrome they don't want to challenge because it it will bite it will kill the goose that lays the golden egg for them the other thing too is the judges uh who um very often are not trained despite the the voluminous uh, material that's out there, both by the um, National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges and the National Association of State Courts, which published a very, very good uh, document called Navigating uh, Child Custody Evaluations with Domestic Violence that says don't listen to any parental alienation and parental alienation syndrome nonsense. That's what it says in a nutshell. Uh, despite the fact that the uh, American Psychological Association in 1996 published uh, its uh, presidential task force report that said this parental alienation syndrome stuff is a lot of nonsense. Still, there are judges who have not heard it because you have judges who rotate in and out. Uh, you know, there's a turnover of judges. Not everybody goes to the training. Not everybody belongs to the National Association of juvenile and family court judges. Um, the lawyers don't brief this and educate them. Um, and a lot of the judges don't go to the trainings. They'll go to other trainings that, that might be more fun uh, or in cities where um, there's more to do than in uh, places where these other conferences might be held. The other thing is there's a real problem of sexism where uh, mothers are uh, viewed as... Uh, Vindictive, you know. There's a uh, famous uh, uh, saying that has done enormous, enormous damage, and that is, "Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned." So there's a yeah. presumption that if a woman claims she's abused or that the kids are abused, she's just being a vindictive bitch, and she has to overcome that burden. She's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. Uh, you know, you even have these cases where judges. Have and, and you know when you think about how how bad this is, you have judges who have accused and psychologists have accused mothers who are breastfeeding their infants of parental alienation syndrome because the father doesn't have the same ability to nurse the infant, so therefore they order the mother not to nurse the the infant, so that they have they're on equal footing with the father. So the child is not alienated. I had one case where a mother was severely beaten by the father. The police came. She was dripping in blood. It was in the child's presence, and the police took a photograph of her with the child in her arms after the father beat her up. And they said that that was parental alienation syndrome because allowing the police to take her picture with the child in the picture reinforced in the child's mind, that the father was bad. So <gasps> yeah, that's that's how, and and people would would be appalled at all this if they really knew it. Uh, there was a study that came out of Massachusetts that said that the more physical evidence there is of sexual abuse, the more likely it is that the the uh, mothers will lose custody. That it everything is 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 counterintuitive. 
because the system is so bad. It's so bent on uh, on uh, proving it, it right, proving itself right. I had one case in Maryland where this one judge uh, had given this uh, little boy who had been sexually abused by his father, and I got involved in the case, and we had a trial, and we actually proved that the father had sexually abused the child, and um, and this one judge uh, in Maryland, uh, and he, he had the mother come up to the bench, and he took her hand, and he said, "Ma'am, I am so so sorry. This is the worst mistake I had ever I've ever made in my judicial oh. career, and I want you to bring your son." to my office next week so I can assure him that he will be protected and he'll never have to see his father again. And after that court hearing, I went into judges' chambers. I said, you know something? I said, I've been doing this for 30, I guess it was probably 30 years at that time. I said, you know, and every week I decide I'm going to quit doing it because I can't, I, I, I can't do this anymore. And that's always, I say that to myself facetiously because I would never stop. But I said, but I want you to know that you've given me a reason to keep going. And he said, why is that? I said, because you're the first judge I've ever heard who admitted they made a mistake. And for you to, to so openly apologize to this mom and admit your error, he said, well, what's odd about that? Uh, it's the right thing to do. I said, yeah, but you're the only judge I've ever seen do it. And he said, well, that doesn't make sense to me because it's right. I said, yes, yeah. but uh, the judges, it's more important for them to uh to um cover up their mistakes than to protect kids. So it's it's very, very sad, very sad. And there are a lot of bad people. You know, up in uh Washington State, speaking of King County, back in the eighties, you had a judge uh, Judge Little who actually was a, a child molester. He was yeah. sentencing kids, he was on the King County bench. He was sentencing he created this this special school for juvenile delinquents and would order them into the program and then uh, would go there and sexually abuse them. And uh, there was um, uh, a newspaper had gotten word of this and refused to publish the story. It went on for a number of years. Finally, there was a TV station that was going to run the story because he was up for re-election. And they called him up and said, you know, we're going to run this story. Judge Little, do you have a comment? He said no. And then he blew his brains out on the bench, right on the bench in the uh, King County uh, courthouse. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, and, I, I, I yeah. lived here for 40 years, and, yeah, I remember that, yeah. And, um, and, it, and turned out, it, it turned out that the Judiciary Commission had gotten numerous reports and had never done anything about it. So... so you know the what what can be done about educating judges i remember several years ago asking somebody well how do we educate judges surely if we i mean these are bright people most people are, don't come from a place of being vindictive and mean and everything i mean people don't normally just want to do something that hurts other people for the fun of it most people do it from a sense of that they're doing the right thing by doing that so you know Judges are human beings. Judges are people. All of these, you know, what can we do about giving them this information? And well, I was told that, you know, you, that we cannot require judges. Now, I don't know if this is still holds true, but this is what I was told at the time. We can require that judges have trainings. We can require that attorneys have trainings. But we can't require what area that they need to have it. Well, Texas Texas state law does require judges to have training in domestic violence and child abuse, uh, child sexual abuse by statute. Texas law requires that. Supreme courts can uh, dictate that in their own rules. Uh, but I don't think – I think judicial uh, training is actually not the most important part of this because, for example, we don't have judicial training on – um, electrical explosions. We don't have uh, judicial training on um, uh, the engineering, the proper engineering of, um, say, farm equipment. We don't have judicial training on the um, intricate analysis of wire fraud. 
But mm-hmm. judges adjudicate these cases can, and can do a good job when the court systems function properly by attorneys competently presenting evidence, the uh, due process rights of notice and the opportunity to be heard are are enforced, and the rules of evidence are, are enforced. And that that provides a forum when for accurate factual findings to be made. So you can have a judge who doesn't know anything about domestic violence, doesn't have anything about sexual, know anything about child abuse. But if you eliminate the incompetent, uh, destructive uh, entities of the guardian ad litem and the custody evaluator out of the works, and you simply allow competent attorneys to present their case to the judge like anybody else in any other situation where they have witnesses, where the victims can testify, when child victims can testify, uh, when uh, they can present the entire case, when competent experts on these issues can come and talk about the significance of the evidence, then the system can work. We can have trained judges but if the evidence does not get to them or in the course of a case uh, this, these bogus theories are presented to them or the lawyers don't challenge the evidence, the lawyers don't know what they're doing, that sort of thing, then then that's where it goes wrong. I, I mean, I, I think if we uh, allow and insist on the due process rights of notice and the opportunity to be heard before an impartial judge, the rules of evidence are applied, and you take out the custody evaluators and the guardians ad litem, I think we're good to go. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, if you could do how that. How long is that going to take? You know, <laughs> well, you know, you can write. Can we do that, that next that, week? <laughs> yeah, a lot of this can be done by legislation, too. I mean, we're uh, trying to get some legislation through in Louisiana that really restricts what uh, these custody evaluators can do. Uh, we have the Post-Separation Family Violence Relief Act, which, interestingly enough, I sat down at my dinner table in 1991 and wrote out on a legal pad, and, and various versions of it have been enacted all over the country and in a number of countries around the world. And what it does is it ties the hands of judges in, in these kind of cases and requires them to not give custody to abusers. Um, so there's a lot can be done in the legislature, uh, but it and 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 that's very often an overlooked place to to solve problems. Yeah. But first people have to buy into it. People have to understand that these old notions are not necessarily notions that uh, that actually are accurate and uh I think that that's what I see more than anything. I see people, not just judges, not just uh, you know court personnel, sure. but I see individuals, people who just don't get it. They don't think that they think if a mother loses a child, it must be because she did something egregious. Absolutely. It does not cross their minds that it happened to her, despite being a really good and protective mother. And hopefully, shows like this will be uh, helpful in educating things. At least that's my hope. Richard Decote, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have so many more questions. I would love it if sometime in the future, I know you're very busy, but if sometime in the future you could come back and we could talk about this again, I would adore this. I would love it. Um, Absolutely. And And we can be reached. Our website is DecoteLaw.com, D-U-C-O-T-E-L-A-W.com, and um, get more information about what we do there. Wonderful. Marilee McLean and your your cohorts there, thank you. I'm so sorry I didn't have more time to get you on the air because you guys have so much to contribute as well. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you, listeners. I end our show with a quote every week. This one um, is, I think, appropriate. It's from a man named Judge Sturgis. Justice is open to everyone in the same way as the Ritz Hotel. Thank you for joining us. Um, Next week, we're going to continue in our final and fourth uh, uh, dedicated episode to the crisis in the family courts. We're going to have Garland Waller, and we're going to have Eileen King, both outstanding spokespeople, and we're going to talk about just what is it that we can do 
about this situation? What can we do about the crisis in the family courts? Are we talking education? Are we talking legislation? What can we do if you are a protective mother and you can't change the fact that your child has to spend time with an abuser? Are there strategies that you can employ? Is there something you can do even under those circumstances that can help the situation with your child? Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for for listening. If Again, on the website, you can go in about 15 minutes, and the show will be available to one and all forever. Thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways, and we will see you again next week. <laughs>